Mm, feel like Goldilocks. Too short. Should be about the right size. <laughs> okay, let's just start this morning uh, with a, a short illustration, which I found in Our Daily Bread, April 8, 1996. So this is a while ago. A group of scientists and botanists were exploring a remote region of the Alps in search of a new species of flower. One day they noticed that through binoculars a flower of such rarity and beauty that its value to science was incalculable. This flower lay deep in a raven with sheer cliffs on both sides. To get the flower, somebody had to be lowered over the cliff on a rope. There was a curious young boy watching nearby. So the scientists told him that they would pay him well if he would agree to be lowered over the cliff to retrieve the flower below. The boy took one look down the steep, dizzying depths and he said, I'll be back in a minute. A short time later, he returned, followed by a grey-haired man. Approaching the botanist, the boy said, I'll go over that cliff and get that flower for you if this man holds the rope. He's my dad. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come today to open up your word. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, help us to receive it into our hearts. Lord, I just pray that you would be with us, that you would lend us a, a spirit of understanding. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. In today's world, we can see people placing trust in many and varied things. We place our trust in family, as we saw in today's illustration. We can place our trust in ourselves. We can place um, our trust in advisors, our money, our career, our politicians. But I've got to say, that's being fairly sorely tested these days. We can put hope in our, our hopes, our dreams, the security offered by marketers selling all the, the fancy doohackies that we have around. You know, trusting in man or his devices generally only leads us to disappointment and many times failure. So when trying to answer the question, in who do we trust?, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 27.9, some trust in chariots and some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. I've got to say, not many of us own chariots and horses these days, but the psalmist is contemplating where we need to be placing our trust. Back in his day, or Greg's day, it was chariots, it was horses. Greg, did you actually polish up the chariot today? Just ahead. Okay. The psalmist sees and realises that the chariots will rust, horses will go lame. So during our day that they cannot be trusted. So he comes to one further conclusion 
when all comes to naught, they are brought to their knees and fall. After that, he only draws one firm conclusion. But we trust in the name of our Lord, our God, where we will rise up and stand firm. Sound advice, even by today's standards. You know, I can't think of one physical thing in this world that we can trust in so totally that it will never fail us. And look, this is even including ourselves. So perhaps today we should be looking for someone who will never fail us. So look, look as the psalmist suggests, at some very good reasons as to why we can be placing our trust in God. A good place to start is God's provision for our lives. And what better than to start with a Bible verse that many people will have heard me speak many times if they come to our local AGMs. Generally, I start our treasurer's report with the verse found in Philippians 4.19. And the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. It's a verse written by Paul thanking Philippians for their sacrificial giving. Paul's acknowledging to the Philippian church that this same God that takes care of him will also take care of all their needs. The Philippians were a poor community, yet out of their poverty, they gave a a great financial gift to Paul. So why did they give when they had so little? Not because they believed that these gifts would somehow grow like some, some financial investment, but because they were spiritually invested in the gospel and Paul's ministry in Rome. They believed in his mission and they could hear and see the fruits of it. So in these verses, Paul's saying that as we participate in the ministry of the gospel, God will provide our every need necessary to undertake God's work. Unfortunately, this verse tends to be misconstrued. Unfortunately, people start to mistake needs and wants. The verse isn't implying that all of our wants will be met. But we must remember that as we undertake Christ's work, we find that our our needs tend to, to fall in line with God's provisions for our lives and that our wants generally take a, a back seat. Another apt verse provi- uh, promising God's provision can be found in Matthew 6.26. Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them and aren't you more valuable to him than they are? Here Christ is emphasising with us understanding that there are basic needs of life that we cannot exist without. But we shouldn't be anxious about these. Life is more than just food. It's more than just clothing. So Jesus asks in, a, in this verse a very pointed question. Aren't you more valuable to him than they are? Of course, the implied answer is that if God feeds the birds, 
Won't he also feed you who are of greater worth? Jesus urges us not to be anxious about our basic needs, but to trust God to provide what is needed in the right amount at the right time. Be careful, though, to read this passage in context. Jesus points out that God's plan and God's will, once again, aren't always identical to our own preferences. God will provide all that we need in order to obey his will, but his will sometimes doesn't include what we would describe as wants. In other words, this verse is suggesting that we we stop trying to control everything. All you'll achieve is to stress yourself out. The best thing we can do is to let go and let God. Entrust and surrender everything to to our Creator. Easy to say, harder to do. Ever scared that God will not provide? A little bit of homework to increase your trust and your faith. Let's just take a look at a small number of examples where God's provided for in the Bible. Genesis 3.21. After eating the forbidden fruit, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, so thereby clothed them. Genesis 22. Abraham's sacrifice of the ram instead of his son of promise, Isaac. You know where this happened? Abraham acknowledged by naming the location Jehovah Jireh, which means that the Lord will provide. Deuteronomy 29.5. God points out to the Israelites that even though they've been wandering around for 40 years, their clothes and sandals had not yet worn out. John 2, 1 to 11, the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine. Matthew 14, 13 to 21, feeding of the 5,000. Jesus had compassion on the loud, large crowds that, that were surrounding him then, and they, he was healing their sick. It was a remote area. And when the disciples wanted to send the crowds away, to go to the surrounding villages to to buy food for themselves as it was getting late, Jesus advised them, this isn't necessary, you feed them. The Bible is filled with plenty more examples if you look. If you need to to find further examples uh, relating to today, have a talk to, to many of the people here. I'm sure that most of us can attest to God's provision in our lives, whether it be through finances, resources, food, lodging, health, or even the provision of a new job when your work and family and spiritual lives seem to be spiralling out of control. And that's one that I can personally attest to. Just one last verse on God's provision before we move on. Psalm 84.11 is also a favourite describing God's provision in our lives. For the Lord God is our sun and our shield. He gives us grace and glory. The Lord will withhold no good thing from those 
who do what is right. Now here's a question for you. How can we not trust someone who sees the big picture? You know, one reason I see a financial advisor is that theoretically they see the financial big picture. These people are highly trained. They study the markets. They look at world events to determine how they impact those markets. They look for trends. They look for opportunities. And who knows what other factors they they examine in their quest to, to see that bigger picture. Through all this excruciating analysis, theoretically, they're able to offer me advice on how to wisely invest my money to achieve a good return. So now I'm going to reframe the question regarding our lives. How can we not trust God who sees the big picture at any moment in time but also knows it from beginning to end? From before history started to when history ends. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything that you can imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Thankfully, this is the God that not only sees us for what we are, but also what we can be. A God who can see our beginnings, our endings all at once and thus plan for all of our days. A God who can therefore know exactly what is best for us. I don't know about you, but for me, life can be a bit like a jigsaw puzzle that we're putting together. And unlike the jigsaw puzzles you buy, we don't have that final picture. We're putting it all together blind. Our life can at times seem to be a series of pieces where the pieces just don't seem to fit together. How often do we try to force the pieces together because we think that's what the picture looks like? The encouragement here is that God sees the end picture. And he knows where and how all the pieces fit together. He, in fact, has the, pu- has the puzzle of our lives already sorted out. And we just need to let him put it together. Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You know what the most encouraging aspect about this is? God not only sees the picture of our our own individual lives, but understands where it fits into that big moving picture, that of world history. Take a look at history. See God guiding individuals and nations to accomplish his end picture. So we're going to take a short walk through the history of Israel. We're going to cover about 600 odd years in about three sentences. 
Watch as the pieces come together as God starts with Abraham, leading him and his wife from a land in which they lived to the land of Canaan. Watch as he slots pieces together, moving Jacob and his family, who numbered about 66, out of Canaan through to Egypt by use of Joseph. Watch as the Israelites become slaves, but see God's provision as they, they grow into a large nation capable of filling the promised land. See as he answers Israelite prayers, freeing them from the yoke of slavery and leading them out of Egypt as an Israelite nation. See as he performs some miraculous signs and wonders, leading them back to Canaan, the land of milk and honey, where they would once again inhabit the promised land. Israel, a nation to be set apart to God. History, God fitting the jigsaw pieces together, one by one, working with both individuals and nations to achieve the big picture. Ever been on the receiving end of a lie? Everyone's lied at some time, knowingly or unknowingly. We even have come up with the concept of the the little white lie. A little white lie thought to be insignificant and justifiable and is generally told in in order to hurt, to avoid hurting someone's feelings or or giving offence. I'm sure that we've all, all been on the opposite side where we found out that we've been lied to. Does it instill a sense of trust in you? Does it bring people closer together? Unfortunately, humanity has a reputation for hiding, misrepresenting and distorting the truth at times. If God could lie, he'd be no better than mankind. And how can you trust someone that has just lied to you? Well, Numbers 23, 19 tells us plainly that God's incapable of lying and thus by his own nature is completely trustworthy. God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? Trust can only be a good thing if the the object is worthy of trust. The God who cannot lie is worthy of that trust. Because God is trustworthy, we can believe totally in his promises which are given to each one of us. Promises like, once again, Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, They are plans for good and not disaster and give you a future and a hope. Philippians 4.19 uh, And this same God who takes care of me will supply all of your needs from his glorious riches which have been given in Christ Jesus. John 11.25 and 26 Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Matthew 28, 20. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, 
and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And finally, Titus 1-2 is one of the greatest promises that God has made to each and every one of us. In the hope of an eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. This verse shows us a truthful God who made a promise to each one of us before time had even started. A promise of eternal life. A God who cannot lie can implicitly be trusted to fulfill all that he has said. And in this case, he has promised us a gift of eternal life that's freely available to each one of us. Finally, Hebrews 6.18 states, So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. Deuteronomy 31.6 was spoken by Moses when he was 120 years old and he had been just been told by God that he would not cross the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land. Moses, at this time, was speaking to the nation of Israel and was inducting Joshua as his successor and leader. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. And do not panic before them, for the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. It was a promise made by God to Israel a promise which we see repeated in Joshua 1.5. No one will be able to stand against you as, as long as you live, for I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. It's a promise that we can still claim today, a promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. We too can claim that promise which we can see in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Just because God has promised that he will be with us and will not forsake us. God hasn't promised that the road is always going to be easy. It's always easy to experience God's presence during the good times. It's harder to see his presence during the, the hard times. So often these times we think that God is absent. It's hard to think that God may actually lead us into to challenging situations but we do know that his plans for us are as good and not to harm us. There's a poem, and I'm sure a lot of people are actually familiar with it. Authorship's disputed, and it's known as Footprint. One night I dreamed a dream. I was walking along the beach with my Lord. 
across the dark sky flash scenes from my life. For each scene, I notice two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one belonging to the Lord. When the last scene of my life shot before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. There was only one set of footprints. I realised that this was at my lowest and saddest times of my life. This always bothered me, and I questioned the Lord about my dilemma. Lord, I told you, you told me when I decided to follow you, that you would walk and talk with me all the way. But I'm aware that during the most troublesome times of my life, there is only one set of footprints. I just don't understand why, when I needed you most, you would leave me. He whispered, my precious child, I love you and will never leave you. Never ever during your trials and testings, when you saw only one set of footprints, that's when I carried you. Deuteronomy 32.4 tells us, He is the rock, his deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright is he? You know, because his ways are perfect, we can trust God in every situation that we experience. The old adage particularly applies here. One cannot improve on perfection. Even though we know that what we're doing, what the Lord desires is the best choice, we're naturally drawn, unfortunately, to do it our own way. We generally think that God's forgotten something. He doesn't know us that well. He's overlooked this aspect of our life that can change the end result. Remember that our God knows everything about us and understands fully our situation and, of course, has the power to work everything for our good. So why do we continually think we can do things better when the psalmist tells us in Psalm 18.30, God's way is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true. He is a shield for all who look to him for protection. You know, finally, one of the greatest reasons to trust God is that he loves each and every one of us. John 3.16 tells us, For this is how God loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's natural for God to love since it's his nature. 1 John 4.7-19 explains it to us. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, 
Surely we ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit of proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen in our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with the confidence that we live like Jesus here in the world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for the fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. For this reason, God loves mankind, as written in Romans 5, 6-8. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though some might be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God shows his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Because God loves us, we can trust him and we can trust that he has our best interests at heart. Is it not the same between husbands and wives? Husbands, do you not trust your wives because she has your best interests at heart? Wives, do you not trust your husbands because you have their business truths at heart? We've just covered six important reasons why it's a good thing to place trust in God. So we see God will provide. God will see the bigger picture. God is trustworthy. God will not forsake us. God's way is perfect. And God loves us. So how does this morning's Bible reading relate back to what we've been discussing this morning? Many of us would be familiar with the story found in Daniel 3. So as we relate this back to the reading, let me start with a little background info. Babylon had risen to supremacy in the ancient Near East. With Babylon's victory over Egypt, Egypt's vassal states, including Judah, come under Babylonian control. Shortly after, Nebuchadnezzar becomes king and moves south and invades Judah in 605 BC. Following his victory, Nebuchadnezzar orders the best and brightest young men of Judah to be deported to Babylon, leaving most, uh, leaving most of the citizens in the land of Judah. By the symbolic, symbolic act of Nebuchadnezzar bringing back articles from the temple of God to lay them up in the treasure house of his God, he's asserting that his gods were stronger than the God of Israel. 
Judah thus became subservient to Babylon. Even though this was the view of Nebuchadnezzar, we know that God permits others to triumph over his people for his own reasons, generally as a punishment for sin. We must also remember that this temporary victory doesn't mean evil is greater than our God or that ultimately he will not be victorious. Ever want to see the hand of God in action? Look behind the scenes at events from Abraham to Daniel and beyond. See the hand of an almighty God using circumstance to build and refine his people in accordance to his own plan. So as a part of Nebuchadnezzar's plan, by bringing these young men back to Babylon, it was to train these people taken from Judah for a period of three years and then give them some positions in the royal court. Haniah, Mishael and Azra were among these first group of deportees. These men were the first of the deportations which Babylon took groups of Judahites to Babylon. Three years of training in Babylon was really an attempt to brainwash the Jewish captives. Nebuchadnezzar wanted these these men to become so indoctrinated in Babylonian culture that at the end of the training they would think and act like Babylonians. This indoctrination was to be so complete that even the names of the young men were changed. In this case, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were the new names. Whereas their Jewish names honoured God, their new names honoured the gods of the Babylonians. Even though we see these men were carried into captivity removed from their support structures, had their names changed and were instructed in Babylonian culture, they would determine that the Babylonians would not change their hearts. They decided that they would remain loyal and trust the God of Israel no matter what. So at this stage of the chapter, Daniel, Shadrach and Abednego had prayed to God to reveal them the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. God had honoured the request and they interpreted them. Something all the wise men, the enchanters, the magicians and the fortune tellers of Babylon were unable to do. Because of this incident, the king rewards Daniel, as we see in Daniel 2, 48 and 49. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel over, ruler over the entire province of Babylon as well as chief over all of his wise men. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon while Daniel remained at the king's court. King Nebuchadnezzar has a bit of an ego problem. He has a statue made, 90 feet tall, And then we see the command that he issued in Daniel 3, 4 and 6. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of all those musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey would be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Beauty. This gave the wise men the opportunity 
they sought to seek revenge on, on the, um, these young men. They went to the king and informed them, as seen in Daniel 3.12. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you. Your majesty, they refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold that you have set up. Puts Nebuchadnezzar into a bit of a rage. So he had these men brought towards him and he challenges them in 13, uh, Daniel 3, 14 and 15. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you refer you've you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the soul you I've set up. I will give you one more chance to bow down to the and worship the statue that I've made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you'll be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? This is the crux of the matter. The answer that they gave to Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, is one of the most powerful trust statements found in the Bible. We can see it in Daniel 3, 16 to 17. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. An amazing response. A faithful response. A determined response. A response that truly showed their trust in God. A response that would require that they they entrust their very lives into God's hands. A response that does not question God's plan. A response that doesn't question God's ability to act. A response which only serves to anger the king more. A response that has the court-wise men rubbing their hands in glee. What a physical demonstration of trust. We've talked this morning on why developing trust in God is good and necessary part of our lives. Remember at this time, these individuals really only had access to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. None of the New Testament existed, so their view of God was limited to this. Even though these men did not have access to the biblical New Testament, they were living by the principle that had been set down in Romans 12.2. Don't copy the behaviour and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is a good and pleasing and perfect Nebuchadnezzar, by this time, had lost all reason. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times its normal operating temperature. 
It was so hot that the, the escorting guards, the strongest soldiers in his army, were killed on the approach to the furnace. At this stage, did Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego know or even think that God was going to save them from the fiery furnace? As they fell into the flames, did they know what God's plans were for them? You know, I can really finish the sermon here. But let's complete the story. Many of us know the anticipation when in the old days TV series left on a cliffhanger. Had to wait till next season to see how our heroes were saved. Or read a series of books that would, would break at the crucial moment. And you would then be hanging out until the author got around to publishing the next instalment. So as they fell into the flames, did they know what God's plans were? These young men fell into flames. Daniel 3, 24 and 25. But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisers, Didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Nebuchadnezzar came close to the door of the flaming furnace and he shouted for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. What a change in attitude. We see the king going from what God can save you from my hand to servants of the Most High God. When these men exited, the high official, the high officers, officials, governors and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their hair was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Nebuchadnezzar's response found in Daniel's 3.28-29 was a complete 180-degree turnaround. The Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people... Whatever their race or nation or language speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they will be torn from limb to limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Hey, what do you know? Last part of verse 29 gives us another reason to trust God. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you that, that you are such a trustworthy God. Lord, we just thank you that we can trust you implicitly because of what you, you've done, Lord, what you stand for. Lord, we thank you that you, you see fit to, to offer us promises Lord, then, and we can rest 
totally because knowing that you will act. Lord, we just thank you for the, the example of these three young men. Lord, and their, their trust in you. Lord, a, a trust that, that is just truly, absolutely uh, a, a, an experience for us. So, Lord, as we, um, as we bow our heads now, Lord, I just pray that you would continue to work in each one of us. Lord, help us to develop that trust in you. Lord, I just pray that, that one day that, that we may be able to, to express our trust as these men have done. Lord, we just thank you. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ that you've sent to save each one of us. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.